Um, the, the, the message I've got today, uh, honestly, was not uh, the message I thought I was going to deliver uh, several weeks ago. When uh, Bill and I looked at the, the teaching schedule and laid out and I looked ahead and I knew what topic I was teaching, what chapter I was teaching, but how it ended up uh, panning out was not quite what I expected. Um, I want to talk this morning about a spiritual discipline that is very rarely practiced in the lives of even um, mature Christians, but it's one that I think we need to embrace and we need to begin embracing on a regular basis, and that's uh, confession and repentance. Um, the story of David and Bathsheba illustrates this uh, perfectly. And I heard this song last service for the first time uh, as I was sitting in the, in the crowd waiting to come up and take the stage. And the words of the chorus just really struck me. And it's, it's really kind of encapsulates what I want to talk about today. Uh, that at the end of the day, I want to hear people say that my heart looks like your heart. Uh, when the world looks at me, let them agree that my heart looks like your heart. Uh, see, in a, kind of in a nutshell, that should be the goal of every follower of Christ. That we live a life that when people look at us, they see the heart and the love and the grace and the mercy and the compassion and the forgiveness and all of these attributes of Christ in us. Uh, that we realize that we may be the only Christ some people will ever see. Uh, I worked with a, a woman in my previous church, and she, she used the phrase, we need to be Christ with skin on. Uh, for people in our workplaces, in our homes, in our communities, in our schools, that we need to live a life that demonstrates what it means to be a follower of Christ, how to live out those characteristics. And so this morning, my whole message is going to be kind of building up to that. And we're going to give you an opportunity. I want to, I want to let you know now, uh, because it's a little bit out of character for us. Um, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come forward at the end of service um, to bow down in front of the stage here as the band closes in song, um, for some of you, maybe to give your lives for the first time uh, to Christ, uh, to confess your sin to him, um, not to another human being, although we'll be up here if you want to do that, um, to ask for forgiveness, to turn away from your old way of life and turn towards Christ. And for some of you, that may be the first time you've ever done that. For, for some of us, it may be that we did that years ago. And we've realized, though, that through the course of the message today, I'm, gonna, I'm praying the Holy Spirit touches your life, that you realize how broken you are. Do you realize how um, desperately you are in need of Jesus once again? See, I think the longer that we're Christians, the more we forget what it was like to be in need of a Savior. The longer we've been in church and studying the Bible, for some reason we forget what it was like to not have Christ. And there's moments where we can begin to become a little prideful, a little egotistical in that. Um, we lose the humility, um, the brokenness. And so today I want to help us recapture that broken and contrite spirit uh, that God calls us to have. Um, so that's my prayer. That's my goal uh, for these next however many minutes I have uh, with you this morning. So, um, again, not quite the Thanksgiving message uh, I had planned on giving. Maybe not quite the Thanksgiving message you had planned on giving. And for those of you who brought family or friends for the first time, um, welcome to Great Oaks. We're glad you're here. Um, my... Uh, uh, the beard, by the way, yes. Uh, no Shave November. I'm a student minister and had some high school students behind me egging me on. And Karen said it was No Kiss November uh, as well. Um, but she can't keep her hands off me. So she's already broken that. So the beard's going. We're keep going. Um, I want to look like one of the Duck Dynasty guys. Wouldn't that be cool? My wife's, I, th- I think she, yeah. Never mind. I love you, honey. Um, I discovered that my daughter and some of her closest friends called me the bald bearded monster. I don't know. So, 
Um, let me ask this question. Have you ever felt unlovable? Have you ever felt like you've messed up so much in your life that you've done so many bad things that nobody, if they truly knew you, could ever love you? Maybe not even God. Have you ever felt like people would be shocked if they really knew who you were? If they knew the, the thoughts that popped into your head? If they knew what you did behind closed doors? I know I've been there, and there's times, honestly, where I'm still there. I'm, see, I'm at, I'm at a halfway point in my life. I've spent half of my life as a non-Christian and half my life as a Christian. Uh, I became a Christian when I was 19, when I was in college. So do the math, I'm 38. And so 19 years of not being a Christian, unfortunately, still influenced the 19 years of being a Christian. And there's times where my first thoughts are not always God-honoring thoughts. There's times where my first reaction is not always what I think God would want me to have. Uh, the first words out of my mouth maybe not be what God would want me to do because I've still got this history with God. I know there's times where I've wrestled with that. I mean, uh, for half of my life, I, I, I was angry all the time. I had a horrible temper. Um, I, I took it out on my family most of all. I took it out on friends at times. There's things I've done to my friends that I'm just embarrassed. I'd be embarrassed to admit um, to you. There, there's times where I just engaged in language and jokes and movies and music and all of these things that you would just be shocked if you knew that your pastor once talked like that or once lived that way. Uh, there were a couple of years of heavy drinking in college, nights that I couldn't remember. Uh, there were multiple years of a pornography addiction that took me years to come out of. I, I think that most of us have been in a point in our lives where if we're honest... We think that God could never love us. That God wouldn't want to love us because of all that we've done. We're almost ashamed to think that, that, that we could come into God's presence and that he would welcome us back in knowing everything that we've done. Maybe, maybe, maybe your sins aren't my sins. Maybe your history isn't my history. Maybe you have a history, though, of an affair. Maybe you have a, a history of an addiction to drugs or alcohol. Maybe having a, a history of cutting or other forms of self-injury or suicidal tendencies. Maybe you have a history of, of violence or maybe even murder. Maybe a history of neglecting your spouse and children in pursuit of your career. Uh, maybe you have a, a criminal felony, a felon activity or a history. I, I know I've worked with a couple of guys in, in my life as a pastor. One was um, at one point on the FBI's top ten most wanted list for cyber crimes. Uh, he spent time in jail. Um, there's another guy that I worked with in Chicago who, I mean, was just big Vin Diesel looking dude. And I mean, he ended up for a long time and I helped him, him kind of move into the life of Christ, uh, for a long time was a, uh, debt collector for a, a drug Lord. And you can imagine what he had to do, uh, in that job. And, and I don't know what your history is, but maybe some of these things aren't in your history. Maybe some of these things are in your present day reality. Maybe you tried to stop, tried to come clean, tried to change your ways, but you keep finding yourself sucked back into that way of life. Romans 7, Paul talks about this. He says, and I've lived out these verses. What I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I keep doing. Are you there? Anybody else with me? You've been in this inner, term, inner struggle, this, this turmoil, this, you're torn between what you want to do, what you know is going to be God-honoring, and, and yet what you do over here is the exact opposite. Well, here's my, my message today. God can still use you despite your sin. God can still use you despite 
everything in your history, despite what you've done. And, and let me, let me kind of unpack that word sin. For some of you, that may be a new term, that may be a church term. Um, sin is anything short of God's perfect um, expectation of us. Anything where we fall short of God's expectations of perfection for us. Uh, the Greek word for sin is hamartia, um, and it's an archer's term. It means you miss the bullseye. Um, anytime that, that we have, that we miss the bullseye of what God desires for our life, uh, we sin. And friends, let me tell you, that is all of us, and that is every day. That is constant. There is no one sinless. There has been one man who is sinless. And it is not me, it is not you, it is not anybody in this room. And so every day, we need to realize and accept the fact that we are sinful, broken people in need of a Savior. And how do we respond to that? Uh, we're going to look at the story of David and Bathsheba. If you have your Bibles, it's in Second Samuel chapter 11. And uh, what I want to do is I want to I show you a video. We use this in the middle school and high school uh, student ministry environments um, as we teach these stories because uh, a lot of the students don't know these stories. On breakaway, on our middle school nights, uh, we have about a third of our, our students who don't go to any church whatsoever. They come on Wednesday night and breakaway is their only night that they're here. Um, and so for many of them, these are brand new stories. They don't know these stories. And so we use these videos uh, to teach them, in a nutshell, uh, what Scripture has to say. Watch this. We're going to look at uh, Solomon next week, but I want to I want to unpack this story of David and Bathsheba. You know, I've read this story hundreds of times uh, over the last 19 years, and there were some things that, as I studied this week, though, uh, that I never realized, I never kind of put together, and so I want to share those with you rather quickly, um, just to kind of give you a, uh, kind of the context, the feeling of what was happening uh, with David and Bathsheba and Uriah and all the, the nation of Israel at this point. But uh, so, if you have your Bible, Second Samuel chapter 11, um, we see in verse one it says, "In the spring." At the time when kings go off to war, uh, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Now, here's the problem already from the start. It's, it's kind of foreshadowing from verse 1. Uh, David is in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, in the springtime, in that, in that day and age, um, all the nations and the kings would go out with their soldiers and they would battle against other nations for dominance. And the springtime was after the winter's you know, thaw came on and the roads were passable and it was okay to travel. And, and so we see the, the nation of Israel has gone out to war. Uh, David's, um, I believe, nephew, Joab, uh, one of his relatives, is leading the army, has gone out to lead the army. And David, who's supposed to be out in the battlefield, is back home. And this is when he goes out one night on his rooftop and he sees Bathsheba. David is in the wrong place at the wrong time looking at things he shouldn't see, looking at things he shouldn't be looking at. Isn't this a way that a lot of our sins have occurred and maybe still occur? Is it we're, we're in the wrong place at the wrong time, looking at things that we're not supposed to look at, doing things that, that we're not supposed to do? We know that. And yet we, we still engage in those activities. Um, when I was involved in the pornography addiction, uh, trust me, there were websites and there were videos, there were things that I was looking at that I never should have been looking at. Uh, it, it was just, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, doing what I shouldn't do. And so and here we have David. And uh, David is, is somewhat pure at this point. And yet we see Bathsheba and we know the story. And so to David's pure character... We had the sin of adultery. Well, it goes on and it says that Bathsheba was the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Um, here's a little insight. When you're studying scripture, ask yourself why. 
Why do I need to know this? Uh, why is that important? Why do we need to know who Bathsheba's husband is and who Bathsheba's uh, father is? Well, if you read into 2 Samuel uh, chapter 23, you discover this uh, section of Scripture that talks about David's mighty men. There were about 37 of these guys who were some of the greatest warriors that David had. They were his loyal bodyguard, the first ones to go into battle for him, the ones who would die for him, who would sacrifice themselves for David. They were his closest warriors, his closest friends, his closest confidants, people that would do anything for him. Bathsheba was the daughter of one of these 37 men and the husband of another. Eliam and Uriah were two of David's closest friends. This is like having an affair with your best friend's wife. This is, uh, for students, uh, stealing money from your grandfather's wallet off of his dresser. Um, Do you get the feeling? I mean, you know, when I've read this story before, Bathsheba was just a beautiful woman. He was like, okay, there's a beautiful woman. You know, king, he's going to take the beautiful woman. Read it now. Bathsheba is one of my best friend's wives, one of my best friend's daughters. Changes the whole dynamics of the message. Uh, Why do we need to know? It says uh, here in... um, Verse uh, 4, so she came to him and he slept with her. And then parentheses, she had purified herself from her uncleanness. Uh, Okay, interesting parenthetical. Why do we need to know that? Uh, Because Scripture tells us explicitly in that very moment, there's no way that she was pregnant by Uriah. Uh, Uriah was out at war. Uriah was on the battlefield. hadn't been home for weeks. Uh, Bathsheba goes through her period of uncleanness and gets purified, has a baby at the hands of David. The scripture tells us there is no way that it's Uriah's child, that we know it's David's child. And so we see David here, not only does he commit adultery, but he takes this God-given power he has, which is supposed to be for the benefit of others, supposed to be serving other people, and he uses it for selfish gain. He abuses his power. Well, then we see Uriah. Uh, David realizes it's his child. There's no way it's Uriah's child. So he says, we've got to do something about this. We've got to cover it up. And so he calls Uriah back from the battlefield and says, uh, tell me what's going on. And, and hey, while you're home, um, why don't you go home, enjoy your home, which means enjoy your wife, and hopefully she'll get pregnant at your hands, and then my hands are clean. Um, nobody has to know it's my child. Well, Uriah is a man of integrity. And Uriah refuses to go home. He says, how can I dishonor my God and disrespect my fellow soldiers by going home and enjoying the luxuries of home? And so it says that he actually sleeps at the front gate of the city and, and with, with David's servants. And well, David wakes up the next morning and gets the report that, hey, Uriah never went home. Um, so he gets him drunk that night and says, okay, now surely he'll go home and enjoy the luxuries of home. And Uriah still doesn't go home. He still sleeps on the front steps. And so we see Uriah is a man of integrity and what David is supposed to be. But David instead lives a life of deception. He's trying to find a way around his sin. Well, he sees that that's not working. And so he writes a note to Joab, the leader of the army. And then he, he says, put Uriah at the front lines of the battle. And when the battle is just at the fiercest, when his death is just all around, draw back and leave him there and let him die. Do you know who delivers this message to Joab? Uriah. David writes a note. It says, Joab, put Uriah in the front line and kill him. Folds it up, seals it with the king's seal, hands it to Uriah and says, here's an important message to the leader of the army. Would you deliver this, please? Uriah unknowingly delivers his own death sentence to Joab. I mean, the drama here is just absolutely incredible. I mean, we see again, David now commits murder. 
Yeah, he didn't kill him. He didn't stab him with the sword, shoot him with the arrow. But he essentially did. He put him in a spot where he knew he would not survive. David murders Uriah. And we see Nathan come along. Nathan's a man of God. He's a prophet. And he, he confronts David with this story of the rich man and the poor man. The rich man has many, many lambs, and the poor man has just one precious little lamb to him. And a traveler comes to the rich man's home, and, and rather than killing one of his own lambs, he, he takes the poor man's one lone lamb and, and sacrifices it and feeds the traveler with that. And David just goes crazy. I mean, he just goes nuts over this. He's like, that man needs to die. He needs to pay back four times what he took from that man. And David adds to his list of growing sins. The sin of hypocrisy. And we look at David. And we see... A man who once did anything for God. Defend the honor of God on the battlefield with Goliath. Lead the nation of Israel into one of the the best, most prosperous times in the history of the nation. Now stained with adultery, hypocrisy, deception, murder, and abuse of power. And yet we know in scripture that God calls David a man after my own heart. How? How is this on David, a man after God's own heart? This does not make sense to me. When you look at everything that David did, and Scripture still says in, in 1 Samuel and then in Acts 13, that David was a man after God's own heart. How? How does he go from that to being known throughout history as a man after God's own heart? It's all in how he responds. It's all in this, this word Repentance. When, when the other prophet, Samuel, uh, went to Saul and said, what you've done is bad, Saul goes, hey, I've sinned against God, but, you know, I was afraid of these guys over here. And he begins to justify his sin. How many times do we do that? How many times do we know that we've done something wrong, and yet we don't want to own it up, own up to it? So we go, well, it was these circumstances. It was this situation. It was this person. It was this, this happening in my life. I, I really had no choice. I had to do it. Rather than just saying, you know what, I'm wrong. And yet when Nathan confronts David, David bows his head, gets on his knees, and he says, I've sinned against God. David displays genuine repentance for his sin. If you look at the word repent in the dictionary, uh, it'll say this, deep sorrow for a past wrong. And that's part of it. Um, but I, I really think that's more regret than repentance. Uh, the biblical definition of repentance is a little more uh, nuanced than that. It's a true sense of one's own guilt and sinfulness, which results in an actual hatred of sin and a turning away from sin and running towards God. Uh, if you've been in the church long, you've heard that repentance is, is this idea of a 180-degree turn. You're going in one direction, and you encounter Christ, you discover what he's done for you, and you turn 180 degrees and go the other way. I, I want to paint a little bit of a, a, a better picture, I think, of what repentance is supposed to be um, in our lives. Let's, let's say it's summertime. Uh, you've been asked by mom and dad to go out and mow the lawn. You have like seven acres of land, and it's with a push mower, right? There's no riding mower. Your mom and dad are cheap. Uh, they got teenagers. Like, that's what we're going to do. And uh, so you go out for the push mower, and you're out there for like four hours in the blazing sun. It's 96, 97 degrees out. And you're out there, and you come inside, and you're drenched in sweat, and you're just dying of thirst. 
And your mom's in the kitchen getting lunch ready. And, and you look up next to her on the counter, and there's this glass of crystal clear liquid sitting there on the counter. And, and you're like, oh, relief. And, and you start reaching for it. And she goes, don't drink it. And because you honor your mother and father in all things, right, students? Um, because you honor your mother and father in all things, you step back. You don't drink it. But do you still want it deep inside? Yeah. Like, I, I picture yourself in this situation. I mean, you die in a thirst. There's a glass right there, liquid. I just want to drink it. Please, let me drink it. You don't understand why. Well, all right, let's tell the story again. It's a blazing hot day, 96, 97 degrees. You're out mowing the push mower for four hours. You come inside, you're drenched in sweat. You're parched. You, you just need something to drink. You're going to die. And you go to reach for that glass of crystal clear liquid. And your mom says, don't drink it. It's bleach. Do you now have any desire to drink that glass? Absolutely not. Because you know what it can do to you. And this is what repentance is. When we look at our sin and we realize it's sin, we realize how dangerous and and damaging it is. And we encounter Christ and we say, I need to turn and go the other way, but I'm never going back. I will never be that person again. I will never engage. In fact, I hate those sins. When I think about that way of life, it, it just, oh, my stomach churns over it. This is what repentance is supposed to be. Uh, Kenneth Barker in the NASB Study Bible says that repentance is more than a change of mind or feeling sorry for one's sins. It's a radical and deliberate turning or returning to God that results in moral and ethical change in action. Um, For those of you who are parents, uh, maybe your kids are different than mine, but mine keep doing the same dumb stuff, right? No, No matter how many times I tell Morgan not to hit Ethan, she still hits Ethan. No matter how many times I tell her not to hulk out and get angry, she still hulks out. No matter how many times I tell Ethan, just sit down and just eat your food and go back to bed, your stomach's fine, your throat's fine, you're fine. No matter all these things, I keep having to tell them over and over and over and over the same things. Maybe, maybe your children are different. Maybe mine are unique. But I keep having to say the same things over and over and over. And there's times where they'll just they'll come into the room or they'll walk down the stairs or you can just see the words starting to come out of their lips. And I just go as a dad, I'm like... How many times, Ethan? How many times, Morgan? I wonder if God ever does that to us. I don't know about you, but there are sins that I tend to keep committing in my life. Things that are, for whatever reason, just always present. And I try and I try and then I come to God. I'm like, God, I'm sorry. The God that I read about in here, if I'm truly sorry, truly repentant, picks me up, brushes me off, sends me on the way with a pat on the back saying, I love you. And when I come back a week later and I say, God, I did it again, he goes, did what? I don't remember. I don't, I don't understand how God can do that, but I'm so thankful that he does. And we all know the difference between genuine sorrow and ingenuine. Between the, the sarcastic sorry and the genuine I'm sorry. You know, apologize to your brother. Sorry! Apologize to your brother. Sorry! Apologize to your brother. Sorry. God knows when our apologies, our confession, our repentance is genuine versus ingenuine. 
sarcastic versus true. Repentance doesn't mean there's no consequences. When, when we come to God and we're truly sorry, repentant for our sins, it doesn't mean there's no consequences. Galatians 6, 7 says a man reaps what he sows. There's still consequences for our actions. Um, Ethan still has to clean his room when he talks back to us. Morgan still has to eat turkey um, when it's offered to her at Thanksgiving. Sin has a ripple effect. What, what we do in private always comes out. The truth will always come out. And it will always impact more people than you think it will. One of the things I discovered in this story of David and Bathsheba, uh, when Nathan confronts David and, and David cries out about the, the, the anger of the, the rich man, mad at the rich man, he calls out and he says, he says that man needs to pay four times what he took from that, from that poor man. The rich man took a life, a beloved life, from the poor man. David calls out for four times payment in that. As a result of David's sin with Bathsheba, David loses four sons in Scripture. Four sons die. His own calling for repentance and payment comes true in his own life. It's almost a prophetic statement that he makes. There's always consequences for our actions. You see, David's story is our story. We may not commit adultery, but Jesus says that when we look at a woman lustfully, Sermon on the Mount, we've committed adultery within our heart. So we lust. We may not deceive as David did, but we still lie. There's times where the words we say are short of the truth. We may not have power to abuse, but we're still selfish. And we want what we want rather than what God wants. We may not murder, but again, Jesus says, if you get angry with your brother, it's as if you were murdering him. I know I've been angry. We may not commit the same hypocrisy that David commits, but we commit hypocrisy. We say one thing, we do another. We point the finger and blame other people. David's story is our story. David's sin is our sin. And put your own sins up here. Whatever it may be, maybe these aren't yours, maybe what I've described already isn't, but there's something that God is speaking to you about right now through the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, I need to address this in your life. We need to talk about this. You see, and the problem is we begin to see ourselves with our sin up there. Rather than seeing us as God sees us, rather than, than coming clean in repentance and confessing our sin to God, and, and maybe even to other people, maybe we've wronged other people, brothers and sisters, we need to go to them and confess our sin to them and ask them for forgiveness. But we begin to identify ourselves by our sin rather than by our God. And God is saying, you know what? If you will just come to me and you will confess your sin and you will be truly repentant, I will wash you white as snow. I will take your sins as far as the east is from the west. I will forget them forever if you'll just come to me. And I have story after story after story of people I've encountered in my years as a pastor who have experienced this. 
People who have been addicts and who are now pastors. People who have had affairs and they and their wife reconcile and are now helping save other marriages. A teenager who was deep in drug culture and criminal activity and now is leading others to Christ because he repented and came clean to Christ. Repentance is a one-time activity you do when you first accept Christ. Uh, think Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, uh, when the people come to Peter and say, what should we do? They, they discover the reality of Christ and their own sinfulness. So what should we do? And Peter says, repent, turn, and never look back. Turn and go the other way and never want to go back to that. But it's also an ongoing spiritual discipline, a habit, a practice that I think we need to embrace in our lives. Because every day we're going to sin. Every day we're going to fall short of the glory of God. Every day we're going to offend a brother or sister, hurt a brother or sister. And we need to go through this process of, of coming clean to God and to each other. Because that's, what, that's the expectation that God calls us to in Scripture. Uh, to confess our sins to one another. To confess our sins to God. It's a spiritual discipline that we need to embrace. And, and honestly, I think a sign of maturity in, in faith is when that gap between your sin and your repentance, your sorrow over that sin, gets shorter and shorter and shorter. You know, there used to be times where I would sin, and I would come like four weeks later to God and go, God, you know, I kind of realized I made a mistake four weeks ago. And then all of a sudden it was three weeks, and then two weeks, and then a day, and then minutes, seconds. And you do it, and you're like, oh, God, I'm sorry. And you truly mean it. As the band comes out, I want to read Psalm 51 to you. What I love about the Psalms is we get to see inside the mind and the heart of David. He wrote many of these. And David doesn't pull any punches when he writes the Psalms. I mean, he, he just tells it like it is. Hey, he shares what's going on in his head and his heart. And, and times where things are going great and other times where life is just falling apart. Times where he calls down, you know, from God to just crush his enemies. And then other times where he's like, God, I'm sorry. and no vengeance is yours. It's not for mine to take. I mean, we just see his humanity play out um, in the Psalms. And Psalm 51 is actually written, if you have a study Bible, you have a little intro here. It says, uh, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And so these are the very words that David penned after being confronted by Nathan. I just want you to listen to him. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you were proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the, jo let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. 
O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God, listen to this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This morning, I want to give you a chance, as I said when I started, to display a broken and contrite heart. It's not something we do often at Great Oaks. But I'm going to ask you, if the Holy Spirit has spoken to you this morning, if you would come forward and you would kneel down here in front of the stage and you would just pray to God. I'm going to ask um, pastors and leadership team members, um, any other mature believers, if you guys would like to come up here and pray with those people as well or, or just let them have a moment with God on their own. You don't, if you come forward, you don't have to pray with one of us. And maybe for some of you, this is the first time. Maybe for some of you, this, you've, you've, you've discovered the reality of your own sinfulness. You've discovered that Christ died on the cross for your sins and that you have a need for a Savior. And you realize that Jesus is that Savior. And this will be the first time you ever knelt down in front of God and asked for His forgiveness. For some of us, we've been following God for a long time. And yet today, the Holy Spirit has spoken to us and said, Chris, we need to talk about this. You've got this area of your life that I don't think you're really repenting about. I don't think you've really come clean about. I just need to have a moment to come up here. And I want to encourage you and challenge you. I mean, we had several people come forward in first service. It might be awkward. It might be uncomfortable. But just pretend it's you and you alone in this room. Nobody here is going to look at you any differently. In fact, they're going to be amazed at your willingness to come forward. Not one right now. They're going to be in awe of you and your willingness to declare your faith publicly, to say, I'm broken. I'm in need. So the band's going to play. You guys come forward. You know, there's, uh, there's spiritual disciplines that are easy to do, I think. Pray, study the Bible, give, serve. Confession is not an easy one. Confessing your sins to God, confessing your sins to another human being, to look another human being in the eyes and say, this is where I've messed up this week. And to go to somebody that you've offended, that you've hurt, and to apologize and ask for forgiveness and restore that relationship. The Bible tells us that we're worshiping. God, God, Jesus taught that if you're worshiping in, God, in church... And you're there, standing before God. And you remember that your brother has something against you, that you've sinned against your brother. Stop worshiping me, God says. Go and restore that relationship. And I think there's relationships that some of you in this room have that need to be restored. And this is not easy. It is a challenge to do. Nobody likes to admit when they're wrong. Nobody likes to admit when they're messed up. Not even to God. We've got to lose that pride. We've got to approach God with humility recognizing our brokenness, thanking Him for the work that He did on the cross for us, that we're already forgiven and yet that's not licensed to sin. We can't keep sinning because we know that we're forgiven. Every time we sin, there's something that happens in this relationship with God and with other people. And God says, I want a pure relationship between me and I want you to have a pure relationship with each other. So what I'm asking you to do, I know, is not easy. But it's a discipline that God calls us to do so that we can be the salt and the light that he already says that we are.
Remember, we may be the only Christ that some people see. When you go into your schools, when you go into your workplaces, when you go into your neighborhoods, you may be the only Christ that person will ever see. What do you look like to them? To the people that came up here, thank you. To the people that stayed in their chairs but God did an incredible thing in your life, thank you for allowing him to do that. I'm going to pray and we're going to close and the band's going to keep playing. If you want to stay in here and pray more, sit more. Maybe there's somebody in this room you need to talk to before you leave. You need to go to that person before they go out the doors. Do it now. Don't miss this opportunity. Don't reject what the Holy Spirit's putting on your mind and your heart to do. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakscc.org.